Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 141. This week, Ken, Donna, and I are talking with Jennifer Newsom and Tom Carruthers of the Minneapolis-based practice Dream the Combine. Jennifer and Tom are a husband and wife team that specialize in site-specific installations. Their work is deeply collaborative, directly referenced in the name of their practice, and looks at the overlaps in art, architecture, and cultural theory while manipulating the boundary between real and illusory space. Could you talk a little bit about where you grew up and what was the impact of those cultural differences or experiences on your practice? You know, it's very interesting. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, was born in 78. And the Vancouver of that time and that I, you know, you kind of, I feel like as though I grew up in a place and a time where things were happening that I was not aware of in the moment. When we returned to Vancouver from 2013 to 2015, I started to realize the differences of that time versus the Vancouver I'd grown up in and maybe helpful in answering your question. You know, I grew up with David Suzuki advocating strongly for the climate and for the world. I grew up being excited. I hope you'll forgive me, but every year was kind of an annual event where Greenpeace would decorate the sides of one of your aircraft carriers that would come to visit in the harbor. Uh, <laughs> I was fortunate to spend some time skiing, but I, I think to kind of bring it back, there was a very strong public like sense of the role and responsibilities and duties of the public and public space there. And you can see it in uh, maybe an underappreciated work of architecture called the Britannia Community Center that may be being reworked as we speak, which is for a 1970s community center. It integrates with the city grid and, and kind of creates new programs that are fostered by the public. And uh, I think that that kind of energizing of public space made a big impact. And that was, it, it furthered a, a sense of, this is getting a little long-winded here. In my high school class, just to be blunt, folks of European descent, such as myself, were f- literally 40 out of 100. The other 60 kids in my class came from different backgrounds, and they were pretty far-ranging around the globe. And I, I think it was not until I came to the States that I realized that things were, like, there were, things were more segregated in some ways still. So I, if that's a, maybe a sort of wandering answer that provides Jennifer some cover. I hope that it's helpful. I have probably a longer front end, but a shorter back end. I grew up in a lot of different places. Let's see. I was born in Connecticut, lived in Florida, then lived outside of Chicago, and then finally moved to Minneapolis. And then within the Twin Cities, I think we probably moved three or four times while I was in middle school or high school. Oddly enough, we always moved every seven years on my actual birthday, which I was like very upset (laughs) upset. (laughs) (laughs) like did your parents plan that that's so odd (laughs) it's like i realized okay my seventh birthday we moved to oak park illinois and then when i was 14 we moved like from one suburb to another in minneapolis and i I was like do you realize that we're moving on my actual (laughs) birthday like is this a planned thing but they were completely oblivious to it but you know i i think moving around I moved quite around quite a bit before I was about nine years old. And then once I was nine, we were in Minneapolis until I graduated from high school and went to the East Coast for college. And I actually really loved moving around and seeing different places, learning about how people lived. I was one of those kids who loved to like ride their bikes around the neighborhood and not like in a stalkerish way, but kind of casually like peer into other people's houses. <laughs> Just trying to sort of like understand how people lived. I totally did that. And I still do that. Absolutely. It's not spying on them. It's just I'm curious how people live. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so, you know, when you're eight years old and pedaling around on your bike, you you get a little bit more of a pass. (laughs) Maybe less so as an adult, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's the reason for the... But the home tours are like... That's not the same thing. No. And, you know, another kind of funny thing is my mom, even though we were never in the, like, there was never any need to move, we always went to a lot of open houses. So I think that also, like, fueled my love of architecture and this kind of curiosity of, like, how do people occupy space? How do they live? How do they move? What do they like to do? Yeah, that's a very, I guess it's also a very long-winded answer. But from about fifth grade onward, I've been... I was in the Twin Cities, and so I kind of say that that's where I'm from, even though it's not where I was born. Ah, 
So the one thing that I've been curious about, because I've been doing some, trying to do some research on you guys. And um, the one thing I did come across um, was your uh, wedding announcement in New York Times. <laughs> Tom is really upset. <laughs> no, that, that might be overstating it, but I, I know what you're talking about. He's like, why does that come up? That's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, and, 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 and this might be totally my Freudian reading, but what was interesting about reading about both the, both sets of your parents and, and your practice in general, the one thing I thought was, and again, it's totally me and I bring my own baggage to all these conversations. So please tell me to fuck off if, if I'm like way out of school here. <laughs> Is that going to get leaped out? No, no, absolutely not. No, we're, we're rated explicit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just for the added traffic. It works. It works. Yeah. Boost in numbers. So your parents, their backgrounds, their, their uh, professions are kind of situated in the aesthetics or science of seeing and being seen. I mean, and I'm extrapolating some of that in my own way of like thinking about, you know, Jennifer, your dad was a, an attorney and, and your mom works for a yearbook company and, and, and Tom, your, your dad's an ophthalmologist and your mom is a dermatologist. And, and I was wondering, do you ever consider, I mean, again, totally psycho me. Um, I don't ride around bikes appearing in people's houses, but <laughs> I, I kind of look at some of these things that are, are part of our, our collective experience. And I wonder, does that, do you ever consider that? Or is that something that's just kind of unconscious and you're not even paying attention thinking about that? Or does it have an impact on you? I think our upbringing definitely had an impact on us. I mean, it influenced what you're talking about around the, you know, around the dinner table each night. So, you know, my mom was a corporate like HR executive. And I think that that grew out of this incredible, like strong sort of ethical backbone that she has. Uh, she worked originally a, in a, as a social worker and then trained as a, as a psychologist and then was like, I want to make some more money. And so she decided to go in and work in corporate HR. But, you know, her upbringing, she was, she was born and, and raised primarily in Montgomery, Alabama. And so at the height of the civil rights movement. And so that kind of, you know, being around that and seeing, you know, the various injustices that were brought to bear on people during her upbringing, I think really influenced the work that she decided to do and making sure that, that, you know, the places that she worked treated their employees fairly and had, you know, a kind of more of an ethical compass. And so I think that was something that I definitely internalized growing up, that people matter and that, you know, they are experts in their own lived experience and it's valuable to listen to that experience. You know, from my dad, I probably got a good sense of humor and a propensity to argue. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the... the uh, <laughs> I will like never back down, <laughs> Tom. Yeah, it's interesting because neither of us particularly like to compromise. And so the Jennifer brought up the word ethics, you know, trying to figure out what is right or, or wrong in terms of a design decision uh, or the a statement of intent for a project, it helps to have the project kind of outside of both of our egos so that some of that can work. Now, maybe to go back to the question, yeah, I, my folks have been very influential and I think that goes for many, maybe for most people without saying, but there's also silences that inform you as well. They have no idea really what I'm doing or why. Hmm. My dad has always had a very strong curiosity about our history of art and architecture. Uh, he once told me that if he didn't go into medicine, uh, he would have been the guy that made the trains run on time for the UK. So there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. And I, I don't want to simplify, but to kind of give you some instances, I'd wake up at early in the morning at five or so and find my mom was already awake. And what was she doing? She's editing film footage of putting some, reattaching someone's retina. So um, I'm having Cheerios and <laughs> retinal surgery for breakfast. Awesome. In the evenings at six o'clock, consistently, we'd have dinner together as a family. And you, one of the things that would be discussed would be like, so dad, how many Van Goghs did you do today? Because he was known for doing most surgery and would do a pretty good job. People unusual or people get a lot of skin cancers on their ears because for whatever reason, they don't put sunscreen there. So the, the other part is that my parents later in life began to collaborate almost as empty nesters and that collaboration began to continue in strong ways. And, and that informed the ability that I could see like, how powerful a partnership is. 
and that a partnership does not necessarily mean the diminishment of one or the other individual, but in fact makes both of you manifoldly more effective. That's so beautiful. And I think so true. And I and I talk a lot about the kind of slingshot effect that in a given situation, like one of you will help kind of slingshot the other one forward. It means that we can iterate more quickly on things with scribbles and text messages and offhand conversations between dinner and getting the kids ready for bed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a shorthand, I think, that develops over a long period of time. But yeah, I mean, I definitely think that we feel like we're stronger together. Isn't that a, isn't that a, someone's political? <laughs> like, yeah, that that, yeah, that's Hillary's <laughs> thing. <laughs> I was trying not to say that, but then it came out anyway. <laughs> No, but I do think that like the work that we make, you know, we probably wouldn't necessarily make it. I mean, we certainly wouldn't make it in the same way as individuals. Like it it's definitely takes on a different dimension because we're working together. But at the same time, there's also formal analogs to that in answer to that question. So my love of Bentham's Panopticon, for example, is intimately tied up with conversations of, over the functioning of eyeballs with my mom. Ideas about the concern of depth and the construction of depth, which are inherent to architecture, are, it's not just, I'm blanking on his name, who wrote this book called Parallax. It's also talking to my mom and saying like, so what are the different ways that depth can be construed and perceived? Like how far is stereo optic vision functional before it just becomes monocular? You know, there, there's concerns about skin and surface that are, you know, I've had my dad take a mole off of my knee. So I have like a mark from him on my body. Uh, but I've also watched video footage of him performing operations. Uh, and I see the aspects of bedside manner. And all of that informs a proposal for a particular place. There's a, a kind of bedside manner for the place, even as much as you may want to introduce ideas of critique. So you both went to art school before pursuing your master's at, um, at Yale. What was instructive about that experience and how did that help inform you uh, about your architecture practice or even just collaborating together in school? Did you have an opportunity to do that when you were at, together at Yale? Oh my gosh. Well, the first year of grad school, we had every single class together and every single group project for some reason we were always in the same group together so yes plenty of opportunities to collaborate uh, in grad school my undergraduate degree i have a ba in architecture so i've known that i wanted to be an architect ever since i was a little kid and you know just sort of slowly chipped away at it and was like oh huh okay i guess now i'm an architecture major oh i guess now i'm gonna work at an architecture firm then i'm gonna go to grad school and so it was this thing that kind of always had this this sort of drive and push like towards doing it since I was probably about eight years old. But Tom went and got a, a you have a BA in art, right? Yeah. In sculpture and drawing. Yeah. Yeah. I think Dream the Combine, one of the reasons why I, I decided to start Dream the Combine with Jennifer is so that I could get back to the kinds of thinking that for me were very formative during art school and then the years afterwards. I was fortunate to leave undergrad before finishing to go and work for a sculptor, Ursula von Reidingsvard, who's now a longtime mentor for me and for Jennifer. Awesome. Uh, Ursula, the first time I walked into her studio, there was a, you feel a cascade of coincidences that make, that sort of means that none of them are coincidences. From the type of work she was pursuing to types of finishes, smells, the way she was realizing it, the people who were working for her, the people like our engineer, Clayton Binkley at the time was an assistant for Judy Pfaff, who was Ursula's best friend and whose studio was underneath Ursula's. But you all are also best friends from high school. Oh, that's also so. true. That's also true. So, the you know, I think coming out of Diller's Scafidio and Renfro's shop and working on the confluence of Tower D, the Shed and the High Line, and a, and a number of other more speculative projects. I think the one of the aspects, just to answer the question with a little bow on it, is that there's ideas of the visceral that I think come from sculpture and drawing that are informing what Jennifer and I are trying to do with this practice of ours. Yeah, and I would say that even as I was studying architecture, I had a very kind of a broad conception of like what architecture brings into its discipline. So, you know, at the time that I was having studios, I was also taking courses in African-American literature. I was taking classes in, 
you know, electronic music. I was taking art classes. I was taking graphic design classes. So I was trying to kind of bring a lot of things along into my architectural education at that time. So I think that even though Tom has, I guess, a kind of more formal art training in undergrad, I think the themes that we're interested in in our practice that we have together now are things that we've kind of both been thinking about for quite a long time. Sort of to return to the earlier question about, you know, parental influence and Tom talking about the mechanics of the eye and, and kind of learning more about how we see. I think from my upbringing, understanding that our sight is conditioned by implicit bias, prejudices, life experience, background, etc. So that vision and the kind of social implications of that are, are very much intertwined together. And I think a lot of the other classes that I took as an undergraduate student at Yale kind of brought all of those things into alignment for me at the same time that I was super interested in, in art and architecture. So going back to Ursula von Reidensberg and knowing her work, and I, I'm sure you, you're familiar also with work of people like um, Eva Hess and, and uh, Jackie Windsor, people that are, were, and especially women, as it turns out, that were sort of doing these bodily based materials. I, Tom, I don't remember what term you used, but it was beautiful, like these, these materially based explorations. And then, Jennifer, going on what you just said about the sort of social imbalances, I, I feel like I, my education in architecture was very much based in materials and material explorations and, you know, what does a brick want to be? But now mm -hmm. I feel like we're looking at a world of architecture that is so much more entrenched in digital and online communities forming, not around physical places, but around uh, around attitudes and and um, political activism and things like that. So I mean, your work, at least what I'm familiar with, is very much material. But how do you see those things starting to to blend more? I mean, I feel like my educational background was very romantic in terms of materials, and I'm sort of facing a hard reality of uh, most people don't get turned on by a brick the way I do. Like, <laughs> Yeah, when I when I start like talking about the long spans of steel that we were able to achieve with hide and seek because of the ways it's, you know, propped up and, you know, using a W6 by nine, people are like eyes glazing over about like steel member sizes. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's wonderful. And everyone's just, that's so boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, well, I'm curious to hear more about why people think that that's boring like why do you think that there is this kind of response of like oh well that doesn't matter i'm just well, curious let's i mean specifically talk about sort of social equity issues i am part of a nonprofit that's specifically trying to push the idea that public physical space totally influences social equity um it and does. i think most people don't <laughs> want to hear that like they just want to hear where do i write a check to you know make sure that the children get fed or whatever like they don't know no one wants to talk about understand environmental racism or like you know even just the highway act i mean let's talk about that like you can... right 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 yeah i mean maybe it's like acknowledging my own blind spots that for me they are so so incredibly intertwined it's almost like i can't see them not intertwined but like lincoln i know this is my limited understanding of american history <laughs> one thing i know that, uh, didn't Lincoln authorize the first transcontinental railroad in the States? So there's this idea that a material practice is intrinsically and tied to social practice as well. That a First Nations genocide is not to get too heavy too quickly, but I think that there is a re strong relationship between material and social practice. Jennifer and I are, and maybe that's an extreme example that we want to look at and post, but at the same time, in response to your early earlier conversation about a move to more digital spaces of sharing like there's a not everybody yet has access to all those digital spaces and many of those digital spaces there's a degree of you have to pay like buy a phone or, or something like that there's privileges associated with right. those spaces so jennifer and i i think remain very strongly committed to analog as a way to talk about not only like that, the idea of an of analog starts to pull in a lot of other factors into it. I don't know if that's a, a way to kind of relate, but the, there's something about inextricable about the access of everybody to public space that's really interesting. And there's degrees of simultaneity in public space that I don't know have been explored. 
and certainly, or at least are, that are areas where Jennifer and I are beginning to explore. So that, you know, we're uh, sitting in essentially a, a kind of suburban neighborhood of Minneapolis. It's not it's suburban. A, well, it's a grid of, of, it's a grid of streets with little houses made of ticky tacky uh, on them. And it's a particular kind of public realm. But there are other folks that are going to say that, like, do, they may not recognize the, those streets and see that as, as public. I don't know that I'm using my the best words here to express what I'm thinking, but there's a complicated quality and to public space that's really interesting. And that maybe the complexity and contradiction of composition and material. If architecture is a service profession, what are we working in service of? I think is maybe I'm just throwing catchphrases together. No, no, no. I mean, there's some really interesting questions around that and the idea of like the sidewalk as a public space, because sidewalks are one of the very few totally public spaces. They belong to everyone, literally. But then you sit when the people say you think of a sidewalk as a as a park, a, a sidewalk is basically a linear park, right? It's a place where people mm-hmm. connect where. And so ultimately, it's going to be, I think, in for one thing, it has to sort of be built well and has to be level so that wheelchairs can go on it and all those sort of mundane things that, again, I find very fascinating. But then there's this overlay of, I think, digital and political act activism and actions that um, can happen in those places that can be brought about or enhanced by the physical or uh, limited by it. Right. You know, I think in Minneapolis, I think about the federal building plaza with those. Is it Tom Otterness sculptures? These little brass guys on the on the. And I can't remember the name of the female landscape architect who designed the plaza. I can't remember, but we'll have to look for it. But yeah. these lawns are, these little lo- like lumps of lawn are so yeah. beautiful and wonderful. And there's signs everywhere that say, do not go on the grass. Do not touch the grass. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I mean, then it's like you get any kid in that space and they run all over those things and, you know, jump on Fantastic. the little. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, to your point about like the explicitness of that, kind of political statement in public space is maybe something that, you know, I think it, it, it resides on a spectrum, right? It's like everything from, you know, direct action to a kid disobeying the sign, you know, like I'm interested in all of those and how like the space of the street can foster like all of those kinds of like that range of disobedience, I think, (laughs) Uh, you know, and it's gotta be, it's gotta be, as open to the child as it is to the activists, you know, like, I don't know, we're very much influenced, I think, by our kids and (laughs) the fact that we have little kids and how that maybe changes our ideas of of how people are going to navigate and use a space. Early in the practice, we were a friend of ours who's a criminologist. She referred us to Jeff Farrell's work on illicit spaces. And I, I think that that was a really a, a kind of freeing body of research that, you know, we had one project that was literally 300 feet from a beer tent. And we went from being uh, kind of adjacent to the piece and seeing how people interact with it to having to get a lot closer to the piece because all of a sudden we had people clambering and climbing on it. And our insurance policy was looking to be like pretty close to getting used. And I, so it's really, I just think that the interactions of people in places, their understandings of that space if they're feeling welcome or in place, the kind of simultaneities you're talking about, of like digital overlays, social overlays are just fascinating. And so we try to, in, in many of the past projects have tried to get projects that are kind of working within those in ways that maybe are, like Ursula, she's not so explicit in her work. She's very eloquent in kind of eliding certain questions, answering others. She speaks in, in metaphoric ways that are not always so clear. And I, I think she works with metaphor as we do, but in ways that acknowledge that metaphors are not always so clear. And it doesn't like optimize to one meaning or one use. Right. So there's no, we're not really working. We we're consciously not working with symbols. So what you've been saying is interesting to me because one of the things I, I've been working on, I have a project that I'm going to be working, I'm working on this year that deals with things that we don't, we don't, we see, but we're not really paying attention to in the community. And they operate kind of quasi, like a quasi governmental agency. We need them to be here and they're not, no one's codifying them to allow, they're not getting a permit to do what they do as far as I know. And a lot of them operate up and down the back of our alleys and they pick up, collect, they, you put out your refrigerator, somebody comes by because usually the city doesn't take it. Somebody comes by with a pickup truck and takes it and sells it for scrap. And no one's really giving them permission to do that. And no one's saying you can't do that. And yet we need them in the community to kind of perform that, that function so that a community can actually function. 
Because if we don't, then the city will start finding us. And then we start putting, keeping these, this detritus in our house and we never get rid of it because we don't have cars to take a refrigerator to the, to the junkyard. And I'm curious, I mean, architecture can't do that. Architecture almost needs permission by virtue of uh, being in the public realm to operate. Yeah, people, uh, bodies move independent of most, you know, most of the time we have governments that don't want to let that happen. But most of the time, a government is free to let an individual kind of do what they want and do what they will. And the streets, to some degree, are public. We have right of ways which operate and that that lay on top of all of that publicness. Um, so there's this permission, there's this kind of perceived freedom, but then it's still kind of cloaked in like, you're allowed to be this much free, but not this much free. And you talk about play. And I think that's really instructive about like your PS1 project, where even at the idea of the, uh, the name itself uh, is kind of rooted in a gameplay. And and it's confined. And and from what I what we've known about the the PS one, you're the third I think third PS one winner we've had on. And interestingly enough, we we had uh, Jenny Sabin on so, <laughs> to talk about the work that you help fabricate and install, Tom. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, you still had that you still had that framework that you had to operate that that brief that you had to work within. But how were you able to kind of break out of that to kind of create those things that you were talking about interesting I, you know we at the shop we have a fellow named mose who collects and recycles the steel aluminum and stainless that are essentially our detritus that would otherwise just build up and we have been consciously trying to work in public and so we there are certain permissions that you have to navigate and negotiate so there are with each project things that could be said about that, those particular processes. With respect to hide and seek, I think some of the, the, you used the word permissions. I think very early in the project, we were consciously working to figure out that process for ourselves first. And one of those techniques was to look closely at PS1 and see that such a story place within architecture also has some significant liabilities. And as a precedent that allowed us to inform this is with Matt Clark's Odd Lots. And maybe more importantly... Uh, fake, fake estates. Fake, yeah. It is the project Art Is by, and I'm trying to remember her name, but... Lorraine O'Grady. Thank you. Lorraine O'Grady's piece. So somehow Lorraine O'Grady and Matt Clark helped us to see those courtyards as, as kind of more awkward spaces that are that do have this that are conditioned spaces, places where not everybody's going to feel welcome. And I think that that allowed us to get to a kind of deeper register within ourselves and began to inform the process of making decisions like this way versus that way. Does that help in response to the question? Well, I think the question was like, how do you kind of facilitate this play or freedom or kind of abandon, even at, at the same time as you're confined there are constraints there are limits of the site there's gravity i mean there's you know there's all sorts of things that code code <laughs> yeah although technically ps1 is a sculpture so you know. yeah yeah true but yeah <laughs> but yeah you don't want to crush 5000 people that would be bad um so yeah i mean and then there are also social codes of like how you actually interact in that place and what's you know deemed to be appropriate behavior in a museum and so even as, you know, the weekly party of warm up every Saturday kind of works in contradiction to a lot of those codes, a lot of those social codes already. But, you know, how do you try and insert something that is aware of all of those constraints, but kind of still has a sort of open endedness to it that can embrace like ambiguity, chance, embrace play, work for one person or five people in the courtyard, but also for 5,000 work for older people, but also for kids, you know, I mean, like the constraints are just sort of manifold. And so like, you kind of have to take them in. And I feel like the only response that felt appropriate to us is to do something that was a kind of open network system that so that there were a lot of kind of points of entry in terms of how you would engage with the architectural installation. So, you know, watching kids, they would run around and push on the mirrors and chase the mist and do all those sorts of things and jump on the hammock 
where while adults were trying to kind of, you know, lay there and lounge and <laughs> have a chill. conversation, <laughs> chill, you know, so, but there are certain like kind of materials, certain dimensions of things, certain ways in which things can be arranged that kind of facilitate that coming together, right? Where everybody feels like they can, I don't know, be them, like be themselves in that place. One of the things I appreciated about your project, and I unfortunately, I just got to miss it. Uh, I missed it. The AIA conference happened a little too soon before your project opened and I wasn't um, able to get there. Um, but one of the things I really appreciated about your project, and I, I was racking my memory trying to figure out if there was a project like this in the past with PS1, they all seem to be kind of these lounge spaces where people just kind of passively just rec- I mean, just lounge and not do anything and just kind of be misted and and kind of become just tissue in in a space. And it reminded me, uh, did you ever get the chance to see, well, I'm sure you've seen uh, James Terrell's projects, um, but I remember seeing his, um, the piece at the Guggenheim. And when I walked into that space, all I saw were people just laying on the floor, not doing a fucking thing. Mm -hmm. And it bothered me. It bothered me. Like, what am I looking at? What am I getting at? I'm just, all all I'm interested in is looking at these people just gazing up at, and I'm like, these people, it just bothered me. So to think about your your project and the mirrors on the gimbals and being able to manipulate and the the game of hide and seek actually is interesting in terms of the person who can, if you can control the gimbal, you uh, the mirror, you can hide and you can actually seek out people with the mirror where, you know, mirrors are usually not activated in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked a lot about the piece as a kind of invitation to performance. And, you know, sometimes that performance was just lounging, but a lot of times that performance was, you know, having a conversation, the sort of intersubjectivity of seeing yourself, see yourself, you know, being viewed versus occupying a blind spot. And, you know, it was interesting to watch like what people did there. I think we learned a lot about the piece after it was up. It was almost Um, an instrument to test out, like the whole proposition was so vulnerable in that way that you like we, I think you can talk a good game, as people do, but how is it actually going to play out? Uh, to your earlier point about constraints, uh, Colin St. John Wilson's book, The Other Tradition, is a, a kind of interesting meditation on that. It, it's very critical of the kind of circle of modernists around Corp and for you know ignoring essentially obvious constraints. Whereas uh, some, he talks a lot about Alto making uh, kind of virtues of necessity. And I think there's, there was ways, certainly with the process for hide and seek, where those necessities were able to be addressed, but there were kind of multiple registers to the project where like, there was a kind of simultaneity where you could manage certain concerns and deal with others. But it, maybe more foremost was Robin Bernstein's work at Harvard talking uh, about descriptive things and how some, an object like a book is not simply an object it's a book that's been written with like it's it really it has a, it's a thing it has a dialogue between you and itself it can be used as intended and read left to right top down or can be misused as a doorstop and that i think robin bernstein's work started to inform this idea of what the constraints are and seeing not so much as manacles but as possibilities so that you can structure a constraint as an invitation to performance so whereas the programmatic requirements for the PS1 competition are seeding shade and water, for us, we arrayed those sectionally, seeding down below, shading above, and finally a cloud beyond that. And that started to allow us to think about how people are going to enter, how what, is going to, what are people going to see, how is that entry experience going to unfold, and how can we complicate that space so that the kind of known volumes of those courtyards uh, become unrecognizable in their reconfiguration. You know, I think I was re- I was reading the pamphlet, and I think you might have touched on this a little bit, um, but the difference between the mirror image and the photographic image. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that is is always difficult for me when I do this podcast. First, I don't listen to any of the podcasts because I don't. What I and I what I realize is that I don't think I sound like this. Yeah, <laughs> I understand what you mean. Yeah, what I hear in my head doesn't sound like what's recorded. And the same thing with the photographic image. What I see fo- when I'm photographed, I am much more repulsed by the uh, the photograph than I am of my 
than I am with the, my mirror image. And, and it might've had something, I, I think a lot of it has to do with my own body issues from, uh, from my past. But what struck me about, again, there's a many things that struck me about your project, but I was remember reading, there was this piece, um, there was this part, I was reading this book and talking about Lacan and the, the sardine can and reflecting in the water. And you're seeing and, and, and the object seeing you and your, your perspective changes. And the one thing that always struck me is um, that with the, with your mirrors on a gimbal, your perspective uh, is always shifting. Your, your vanishing point is always shifting and it's always changing. And the image is, is simultaneously there beyond behind you in front of you and you, and, and trying to really think about that is just when I see the, your videos on your website. It just blows my mind to have that experience. And you're just doing minor manipulations with the, either the, the mirror for longing or just you tilting your camera or changing your angle of the camera. It, it was just fascinating for me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think particularly for, well, okay. So you mentioned longing and hide and seek in a way was the kind of test of longing sort of in mass parallel, right? Like, so if longing is sort of the singular instance, then hide and seek, like kind of arrays it in a much more sort of, I don't know, dynamic array of, of, of various components. And so you get these kind of incident reflections from one kind of bar to the next, also that sort of disorient you and kind of confuse your understanding of the place. But I think, you know, this attitude about multiple perspectives, it's like it then makes every individual perspective like just as important as every other individual perspective right like there's never a kind of like yeah there's not a like privilege or some sort of like hegemonic master narrative like in in the understanding of that space because everybody's experience of it is always changing all the time as they move through as the mirrors change as the people are different but it's not just a receptive thing like a like a person has a video camera yeah no 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 people at hide and seek are authors like there's a co-authorship component project that's not often discussed like that and and the i mean further to your constraint of a master your critique of a master narrative that is a it's sort of a recursive thing like we intentionally limit our the extent of the authorship and i think oddly that like by focusing on the interaction of people, somehow the author and allowing and maybe and consciously trying to foster the authorship of the people who are going to be there experiencing that, whether they're trained architects or whether they're students or whether they're people coming in off like from the community off the street, mm-hmm. that somehow like giving people credit always, uh, if you get to unexpected places. And, you know, I, I took your, your question about the, the difference between the mirror image and the photographic yeah, image fascinating. Is, is fascinating. You know, I can relate to the discomfort of seeing myself in a picture versus the mirror, even the, the sound of my own voice. And it reminded me of a story my dad told me about growing up in Liverpool in the 50s and early 60s, uh, around the same time that the Beatles were there. And, you know, the Liverpudlian accent has this sound. You see that bird over there in the chair with the fur hair? <laughs> uh, and he he describes immediately pegging himself within like upon hearing that that recording of his own voice he pegged himself within the the hierarchies of the UK and uh, so he was fortunate to have a neighbor with a voice recorder and he just quietly worked and recorded his voice and would have kind of play with changing his accent as a Canadian now they love his Liverpudlian informed British accent but. <laughs> That's a, you know, a, a different context. So what we're doing with longing and with these projects that look at a kind of longing in parallel, so with multiple instances, is that we're sexually deconstructing an image in ways that were done by Bramante. They were done by Piero della Francesca. They were like Bentham's Panopticon is a pretty clear instance of that. These are these a kind of singular images that are understood as occupiable depth, not just as a, as a kind of flatness. And I think that the emphasis on the mirror versus some other like kind of digital manipulation or a kind of after image of a photograph, it puts the emphasis on the present, on actually like being in the place, having the kind of lived experience. You know, I think when when Donna was talking earlier about digital space and online communities, it's it's funny because like, I mean, I'm on Instagram, but 
I don't know. I'm very much like working in service of just like being present. (laughs) And so I think the documentation of our work tells a different story than actually being there and experiencing the work. And we're very conscious about the difference between the two. And yet sometimes I learn more from the documentation than I did from like I learned different things. I learned different things from so, the documentation than from actually being there. So with Make yeah. It Rain, the, the videographers we were fortunate to collaborate with on that, they captured uh, this visceral sweating void that is almost sweating in public, hidden from view, but in plain sight. With longing, the it, when Jennifer took that video in the, the, uh, the wind advisory, Yeah, I took a video of longing when the wind was like really whipping around. And so the the mirrors, I mean, they only move probably about five, maximum like five or six degrees, not even. But you get this really incredible like kind of flexing of the space within the image of the mirror. And I think that video reveals that longing is not an object or, or a piece that is being operated on. Suddenly in that windstorm, its character becomes evident and manifold. And it has moments of of kind of placid sanctuary when it's still then there's moments where people touch it and it it kind of springs back in certain ways that are elastic and unpredictable and that's where the the kind of analog space does things that i still think that that the image when understood digitally doesn't yeah that that piece when it i didn't realize the wind was actually making that happen i think oscillate is a great word you kind of feel like you're being it's almost like a representation of uh, time travel. It has that kind of mesmerizing, almost kind of uh, psychedelic trip that, that like something's going to happen to Jennifer. Like she's going to somehow just go down this this thing and not come back out of it again. <laughs> you have lots of stories of people going and like doing mushrooms at that. <laughs> so. But there, there is a, in the Strugatsky brothers wrote a, a story called Roadside Picnic. And there's an aspect of that story a kind of shimmer that mm-hmm. you know starts to talk about it's just interesting bringing science fiction into a, a discussion about this work that's been out there it, you know it, that is something that we check in on i think we, even for the in as jennifer presented uh, the proposal for hide and seek she quoted come on brain ursula Le Guin's description at the opening of the dispossess as a uh, it was a wall and like all walls it was two-faced you know, there are there are something about science fiction allows certain things to be said and expressed in ways that other media don't. So maybe this question about the mirror image, about photographic image, about the gaze, like these different medias. You know, we even received advice on our proposal for PS1. Like feed the hunger that they have inside them was the review, the critique after seeing our proposal. And I, I think yeah, that's like understanding, like, what is it that people want understand the jury understand what they're trying to do in that space but also i think you know the feed the hunger they have inside them that was something that ursula said to us after seeing this little 3d printed model of our kind of early scheme of the project and um you know i think the them in that instance is also you know ourselves like what are we hoping to do why are we doing this so but don't be too precious about any one particular format media you know there's like see what they see how they're interacting. The um the other thing I caught from the the pamphlet and this was interesting again I and I wanted to get your take on it. You both referred to the security staff as and managing the space. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because how mirrors are used in penitentiaries as ways of seeing things and not be seen and and communicating. And I'm wondering, because there was an instance where the security thought they cleared out the space and, you know, they thought they knew it well enough. And it appears that they didn't know it as well as they thought they knew it. And there was like people that were, had to be then ushered out and, or, but I understand that's the nature of that particular site and that people try to hang out longer than they need to. So maybe that's just kind of the nature of the site, but could you talk maybe a little bit about that and I was thinking about because <laughs> Foucault and 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 prisons and surveillance and and uh, thinking about that. New York is a there's a couple ways to enter into that. New York is a an interesting place. Like just because someone else owns a piece of property doesn't mean that the person who's standing there doesn't own it too. And this starts to speak to ideas of craft that inform our work in ways that I think are maybe more natural to sculpture 
Martin Purrier talks about this, and that the form of craft can take different aspects. It can be like, can you make the right cut or get the right finish or the right weld or something? But it can also mean, do you remember people's names? And doing the installation for Jenny at PS1 in 2017, I got to learn a lot about how that museum runs, how things get through the loading dock. You know, things, these things that sound sort of prosaic. And in, you know, if I'm going to go to the diner and get an orange juice and seltzer for our crew, you know, I, I, on the way by, I ask the security folks, like, anything I can get for you. And there, there's sort of gestures of mutual respect in terms of that is their place. But in, for that moment in time, it was also my place. And I started to learn in talking with the security folks about how they understand that space. And they're the ones who spend the most time in yeah. it. You're in, you're out. They know it the most intimately. And so, you know, but there is this kind of odd, like, overlay. Because, you know, like, when you go into a museum or a gallery, the security staff are almost like this sort of, they're present, but they're kind of invisible, right? But, like, they're meant to blend into the background. I think about that piece by Fred Wilson yes. where it's, like, the security guards, you know, these mannequins of security guards wearing all the uniforms from the major museums. And then, of course, the piece is displayed in a museum. And so then there's like a real security guard like standing <laughs> next to it as though they're these, you know, silent actors. But they, I think, I think in our process of like actually installing the piece and also in the conception of the project, really understanding that they are experts in that place. They have their own agency in that space that they're meant to be completely silent and almost invisible in. And also, like, the security staff are mainly the people of color that are in those institutions. That's true. And so, you know, to be this kind of, like, silent guard is very, very strange <laughs> to me. Uh, and so I think you know, part of the way we conducted ourselves there and way we, the way we thought about the project and tried to involve their input in the development of the project is recognizing their, their agency in that space. They have the most accurate and complex understanding of the interactions between people in that place. They understand what happens if there's not adequate coverage, like shelter overhead, and you get a thunderstorm yeah, what, in what the middle people... of a concert. They understand what 4,000 people charging the doors of PS1 means. And they understand some of the, sort of, as Jennifer pointing out with Fred Wilson's piece, that moves security from being a blind spot to a focal spot. Mm -hmm. We were able to craft... Like that is these these kind of networked propositions like hide and seek. They have these, I guess you could call them view corridors, these voids. But you can also step into vision and you can step out of vision. And so we knew from conversations with security where they stand. And we were able to craft the, the proposition informed by how they occupy that place. Right. It's like they, their purview became broader or augmented in other ways because of the insertion of our piece like they could actually see around walls in different ways and th there were really funny like there's one place uh that's behind one of the mirrors on the runway where people would go to to make out to to smoke to do something whatever thing uh, that they thought nobody could see them and doing. there was uh <laughs> there were two mirrors uh, that kind of crossed the, the 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 runway that from oblique views from where the security folks sat sat gave them crystal clear vision of what was going on behind that in that kind of so there's we both created an illicit space a space for illicit activity and then also allowed for the surveillance of that activity so there was you know you're sort of playing games double games here yeah and i you know the title hide and seek yeah it is a childhood game but it also speaks to this like kind of nature of the surveillance state i mean we're all being like sought in some ways especially you know as public spaces kind of being overrun with closed circuit cameras and privately owned public space and AI. things like that and ai algorithms too so yeah anyway that's kind of an aside <laughs> <But>. <laughs> so what's what's next after what are you doing now what's what, what are you working on these days uh, a couple of things actually last week we just had a really kind of beautiful site visit to about 160 acres in the Kickapoo Valley in Wisconsin. And we're doing a, a series of kind of distributed structures there for this series of, of conversations, um, these gatherings of kind of academics and locals, people who are interested in the 
kind of multiple narratives of history that exist in that landscape. Everything from, you know, indigenous populations that were originally on that land to, you know, efforts at governmental control of that land, you know, to, you know, kind of the Anthropocene and its effects on that land. So somehow making these kind of structures that sort of respond to these various influences and this kind of continued activity that exists in this place. That's one project that's kind of in its early stages and sort of taking shape, I would say. Uh, Then there's a project for a gallery in Seattle that will be opening in October that possibly it's likely that will be the first in some time that has zero reflective elements in it. The, re- the reflection is then literal or verbal as opposed <laughs> to physical. All right, Tom, are you worried about like, <laughs> how, how we use mirrors in the <laughs> Not worried. I'm just, you know, so that... Tom doesn't like to be pigeonholed in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Therefore, I pigeonhole myself in that way. <laughs> There's, uh, yeah, so that installation at, at Mad Art in Seattle, that'll be in October. Then we've got a project in Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh, which actually is a kind of, it's a new project, but sort of using elements from the PS1 project. In oh, It's a way, like the PS1 proposal had some uh, programmatic elements and aspects that proved to be challenging to realize within the museum context. And even before we had submitted the proposal we'd been in discussions about doing an installation of sorts in wilkinsburg just outside of pittsburgh and so we're that project is it's a public project and and for the conversation of constraints and approvals beforehand you know it's a it's it's a layered thing so we've we've got many of the approvals we need they're making good progress on funding but it's just one of these projects that takes time before i finish up with the my last two questions. I just want to ask you real quick. I assume that PS1 owns the uh, hide and seek. No, we own it. You own it. Yeah, we do. So what what happens? What happened with it? Parts of it are in Wilkinsburg to be installed as part of this new new piece, and then a lot of it got recycled. Honestly, uh, some pieces came back. Some to people's the Twin yeah. Cities, but we were very careful in the selection of elements that. They could either be recycled or, or reused. So the plywood uh, from the runway went up to make uh, for bird coops in upstate New York, as well as much of the shade fabric. Uh, the steel, what wasn't going to Pittsburgh, was some of it was given to Socrates Sculpture Park for emerging artists yeah, to yeah, use. That's true. Large portions of it, as, as a, kind of the industrial nutrient that it is, uh, were recycled. So my final two questions for you are kind of the standby for the podcast um what are you listening to these days and what are you reading mm, listening to i don't know listening to house music <laughs> <laughs> i have to admit i am not a podcast listener you know most of my listening consists of like what is it 91.3 or what is the the like college radio station here oh, in, in yeah, yeah. Or like listening to children's audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> so there's Hazel's been really into Ramona Quimby lately, so that's what been part of what I've been listening to. <laughs> uh, I've been listening to Little Sims, and then recently discovered. I don't know how I never listened to Steely Dan. You never listened to Steely Dan? I, no, yeah, I it's didn't. hilarious. So he's like playing Steely like, Dan, and I like. I'm singing along because my sisters, when I was growing up, I have two older sisters that are like 12 and 13 years older than me. And so they love Silly Dan. So I like know all the words to me. <laughs> and Tom, he just looks over at me and he's like, you're full of surprises. Ignorance knows no bounds. There's just so much that I don't know. Like oh. I found this William Gibson. So he's really known for his, his fiction, obviously. But in my love of absurdity, I found a book of his nonfiction pieces. And so he, in those nonfiction pieces, he writes uh, like uninvited reviews for Steely Dan, also for an uninvited review like 20 years after the fact of Joy Division. So is that one good? That's got to be good. <laughs> Joy Division is amazing. I don't know how oh, I've yeah. ever heard of them before. <laughs> it's because you lived in Canada. 
<laughs> but you had to hurt a skinny puppy, mate. <laughs> right? Yep. Well, he knew skinny puppies in division somehow. And then in terms of what I'm reading, I'm reading The Old Drift by yeah. Namwali Serpel. It's a kind of multi-generational novel, also sort of interwoven with the history of Zambia. She's a Zambian-American writer. Also a good friend of mine from undergrad. <laughs> uh, but it's her, it's her debut novel, and it's, it's really fantastic. Uh, the language in it is kind of exquisite. So that's something that I've been reading. Well, Jennifer and Tom, I, I knew when I saw Jennifer, for the first time I met Jennifer was at uh, Dogwood Coffee Shop, just down the street from my house. And there was this woman reading, what were you reading? Was it the Burkhauser or were you reading Le Cabousier? You were looking at something. I don't know what I was reading. Oh, my mm. God. <laughs> You were looking at something. I'm like, clearly this, I'm like, okay, this is someone I have to just say hi to because no one, no architect in, in this town that I've ever run into has ever like looked at those books. And I'm going, <laughs> well, that's the shit that's in my library. And I'm like, who are you? Like, who are you? And why are you reading that? <laughs> and I'm like, so when I found out who you were and then I found out your practice, I said, yeah, we need to get jennifer and tom on as soon as possible <laughs> it's been a while but um you've been super busy so i want to thank you both for coming on today and my deepest admiration for you because i think you're one of the best things going on in the twin cities right now thanks so much ken thanks ken. that means a lot yeah and there's there's a lot of great stuff going on in the twin cities so i don't <laughs> i don't know no, don't <laughs> it's funny, you know, the there was a piece about you on Arconnect about a year ago, and I was the only one that commented on it. And I was critical of I because I used to be on the Minneapolis Arts Commission. Uh-huh. And I was really I was kind of critical of something you had said. I think one of, I forget who said it, so I'm not gonna point fingers, but um <laughs> because I well, the only criticism I had was is that Minneapolis compared to cities of our size population spends less money on public art than any other city in the entire country. Yeah, I will say there is a dearth. Of, oh, yeah. Of, but, you know, I think hopefully. That but St. Paul is kicking ass. I mean, that you that you're part of North, uh, the the uh, Northern Lights and that you did that over there. I, I think you you and Tom will change that. I think um, not because of this podcast, but because you're PS1 and because of your presence here. Um, that will have to change. But yeah, that was my criticism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think it's hard when I'm talking to people who are not from here because I feel like so much of my time is spent just like this is not flyover country. Like there's, <laughs> you know, like just trying to get people to understand that Minneapolis and St. Paul and the metro area are actually pretty cool doing some interesting things. So I probably end up sounding less critical and more over enthusiastic just to like rep our city. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not from here. So that's why I find some kinship with both of you. And I'm one, you know, I think off, you know, outside this discussion, we could, we could probably chat about the experiences of being a foreigner inside, uh, in, in a Minneapolis. It's been because the experience, even though you're, you're kind of situated here, Jennifer, it, I, you moving around a lot reminds me a lot of my youth. My father was in the military. So I always thought I had an easier time finding myself here. And it took forever. Yeah. It took forever. It definitely <laughs> helps that I grew up here. Not that I necessarily, you know, like still hang out with a lot of people from high school, but it's just like sort of understanding the place and it's weird yeah. ticks and it's passive aggressiveness and it, it's oh, yeah. oddness. Um, yes. You know, it helps that I kind of grew up here. So it's just yeah. like there are things that I observe that I'm like, that's so Minnesotan. And like, <laughs> other people would feel like, oh my God, that's so annoying. And I'm like, no, it's just what's happening. <laughs> but I will say that we're still doing what we were doing in New York. We're still doing the same things we were doing in Vancouver. Vancouver yeah. We're just doing those same things here. Somehow there's something about the Twin Cities that I do not understand. And not to get all mythical, but <laughs> like there's something about this place that works. And I don't understand that. And I kind of love that kind of weirdness. So Yeah, I think it's because it's like full of nice Midwesterners who actually just value hard work and are just enthusiastic. So I appreciate you, Ken, for reaching out and, and trying to get us on the podcast. No, I, thank, I, you. I, thank, thank you. Thank you. 
terribly appreciative of you sharing your time today so much. And I'm still here. I've been thoroughly enjoying listening. I've been much less uh, involved in this conversation as I usually am because uh, I know that Ken has done so much uh, research on, on your work, but I've, I've really enjoyed uh, listening to the conversation and I can't wait to share it with our audience. And thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so grateful. Thanks. Well, that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.